Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome, rugby fans, to the episode 32 of the Rugby Rant featuring the big guy, Scott Ferrara, Rob the Robert Hammerschmidt. Um, our buddy Ty could not be here today. Um, he has a little, He's taking a little family time uh, with his new son um, and, his, and his wife. So congratulations, Ty. Um, and before we start, I just want to let you guys know support for the Rugby Rant is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in man's below the belt grooming. Uh, Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer and engineered uh, this perfect trimmer called the Lawnmower 3.0. Their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade <laughs> to reduce grooming accidents. You know, you get nicks, you get cuts, you get all this crazy stuff with the, these other trimmers. You don't get that with the Lawnmower 3.0 from Manscaped. They just debuted in the UK, New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code RugbyRant at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at um, Manscaped.com using the code RugbyRant. Your balls will thank you. So for those of you who don't know how this show works, uh, we get two topics that are uh, given to us by the fans, and we each have two minutes to rant about them. Um, if you go over your two minutes, Rob, what do you get? The cheese. You get a yellow card. If you happen to go over your two minutes again, uh, we take you off the screen for the rest of the show. So be wary, guys. Nobody has received a red card yet, but I feel like Gordon might make history. Um, today, <laughs> we have Gordon Gordon Hanlon, who is coming. Uh, yeah. We have Gordon Hanlon coming, us, uh, coming at us uh, from the bunker uh, as a CIA operative, apparently. Um, he's very, very sketchy dude. As you can see by his uh, feed, Gordon, uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, guys. And we also have Bill Baker's from e from Eagle Overseas. Um, if you guys ha haven't seen his series, um, he does great interviews with all of the Eagles playing internationally um, in the different uh, in the different uh, unions. Uh, Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Looking forward to this. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Great. So the two topics, we'll go with topic number one. The first topic the fans picked was who has the best and who has the worst 2021 MLR schedule. As we know, on Tuesday, they dropped the schedules around 9 a.m. Uh, the big guy was super excited. Um, it, it was it was also announced, and, and I think this is big news, and this might you know come up in maybe somebody's uh, rant here, but Rooney sent out a communication to their fans saying, we're not taking season ticket applications as of yet because we we are not sure if we will be allowed to have fans in the stands so they came out they came right out and said it listen we don't want to sell you a season ticket if we have to then refund the money because it's just crazy and and this and that and they had to go through it last year why go through it this year so they've been one of the only teams to come forward with that statement but also new york also is under one of the severest covid right. restrictions so i could see why they they kind of want to do that um but what we're going to do is we're going to hand it over to Rob for his two minutes. Who has the best and worst MLR 2021 schedule? Well, I looked at it pretty hard, and I looked at three things as I looked through the schedule, everybody's schedule. And one of the things I looked at is the bi-week placement. So that was one of the criteria. Second criteria is uh, their long string of matches. So teams that had a long string of matches, I was looking at like some of the teams has as many as 10 matches in a row in between their bye weeks. And uh, to me, that's something I look for because that's a tough road to hoe over the course of 18 weeks. And then finally – um, I was also looking to see some of the home and away matchups, like where did their, who did they match up with? Was it home or away match after their bye week, before the bye week? So I looked at some of those pieces. And basically I looked at it, I really thought the best schedule looked to be New England's. Now keep this in mind, I think that every team has some nuances that make their schedule difficult. But I thought New England's was pretty favorable. And I looked at it this way. Uh, number one, their bye weeks were perfectly spaced. They have six games, they have a bye week at week seven. Uh, they have another uh, six games. They have a bye week at 14. And then they have a string of uh, the last, what, four weeks. They can really get tuned up and get ready for playoffs if they're in a position to be there, right? So it really makes uh, for a nice balance in their schedule. Um, I also liked how they filed their bye weeks up with home matches. Um, they followed up with L.A. in week nine. Uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, week nine. And um, 
in week 15 with DC at home. So they're coming off bye weeks at home. They kind of get comfortable. They're in one space uh, training at home, getting ready for those matches. Um, and then um, I like their, their, their matches uh, at home. And the last four in the season are against conference opponents, which is going to make for a really exciting end of the season, especially if they're in the hunt. Um, the, the Houston, I thought, had the worst schedule. And uh, they end, first of all, um, they have uh, they have no they have their bye week in week eighteen, so if they're not in the hunt for playoffs, it's like meh, you know, it's end of the season, uh, you know. Um, so that's you don't want your season end in a bad way. Um, they have a ten week stretch in between their bye weeks, and they have a really bad stretch weeks nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen and fifteen. So those are my picks. So you you went really with the with the bye week analysis of everything and you know we as we know rugby union is is a big war of attrition sport so my question to you is do you think the mlr should have done a better job uh, spreading out the bye weeks in in a better fashion for some teams i don't know how they could have right you have uh based upon the the fact that there's a bit of an imbalance you know six teams and seven teams respectively in the conferences you know that you're going to have at least you're going to have to have a team off every week Right. Somebody's going to have to be off just because you have an uneven number of teams. Um, and then uh, I think there are three weeks there spaced throughout in which there are three teams that have off. So I think some of the challenges due to the imbalance really made it pretty difficult to, to uh, you know, uh, have the bye weeks appropriately placed for teams. And again, I think the big loser there was Houston with the final week uh, being their bye week um, or one of their two bye weeks. Okay, so uh, the follow, another follow-up question to that would be, would it have been better to, let's say, give everybody uh, one bye week you know, in, in the intermittent weeks and then everybody, like, at an extra week to the season, say everybody at week 10 is off and, and mid-season and just everybody's not going to play that weekend. Do you think that would have been a, a better way? No, I think it out? ruins – no, I, I don't like it. I think it ruins the momentum of the season, right? They have a really good product. If it if it kicks off and we're fortunate enough to have fans in the seats and we're fortunate enough to get this thing going and we're, we don't have the serious COVID restrictions that some of the other – I mean, the NHL, I think, just released their um, schedule this year, and they're reorganizing the conference specifically for COVID. So if we're fortunate to get this thing going and, and get it moving – um, you know, uh, it would ruin a really good flow. And as a fan, I, I want to see matches every week. You know, it's a bottom line. I look forward to watching two or three or four matches every week. I don't want to ruin that flow. It's just sometimes you have to take the good with the bad. I mean, Toronto is at the other end. Their number one week is their week off, right? And then they have to go on the uh, uh, have a pretty heavy stretch. But, you know, so there's going to be winners and losers in that process. Definitely, definitely. Um, I, I like – I got to be honest. Last week you were a little – you were a little – you weren't as hot as you as you are right now, um, so I'm glad you, you came and you're spitting hot fire right now. It's great. Um, the pressure was on, man. I'm I've been in a dry spell. Like uh, seriously, know, like a, um, church. And, I'm not getting any action. <laughs> Friggin' Rob, always coming with those old man sayings. Gotta love it. So, Bill, we're gonna move on to you. Uh, to uh, speak about our sponsors, Manscaped. <laughs> Bill, Bill, we're going to move on to you. You're, let me know what is the best and worst schedule for 2021. All right, all right. I didn't go nearly as deep into research as Rob did, but I, I basically best and worst. First of all, I want to say my favorite would be the Free Jacks. Not best or worst, favorite because they got New York three times and Toronto three times. Now we all know Boston, New York, done three times. I love it. Too bad it's only two in New York, not two in, in New England. And the other one with Toronto is, I think, even more obvious. It's the battle of the collars. I mean, two collar jerseys going against each other. <laughs> the collar series. I like Perfect. That. Yeah. All right. Best. And so when I looked at, I saw San Diego. Okay. They're still a really good team, even though we've been losing a couple of good players. And two times each, they got the Gilgronis and the Jackals. All right. We got two expansion teams that usually won't do well in leagues, but who knows with this league? They're, they're paired, uh, the clubs are still really close together, really good players. But I feel like, between those four matches and then they have uh, four more matches against underperforming Texas teams like Houston and Austin. And, and I'm looking at last year's, you know, those five game uh, records and stats underperforming. They got Seattle who underperformed, but still should be a good team. They face them twice and then Utah twice. Utah's going to be tough. Uh, and then we have, you know, Toronto, New England and NOLA as well. So I think San Diego has a pretty easy uh, uh, way throughout the season. 
you know, especially with those those uh, expansion teams. Now, the toughest schedule, one of the expansion teams, Gilgronis. I really think that they've got San Diego twice, they got Seattle twice, they got Utah twice, and they got the you know got Austin, Houston, Dallas. San is no, just for now, what I've seen, I think there's no way they beat San Diego, but you know they have their chances against the other teams, and then they got New York, NOLA, New England, Atlanta as well later in the year, and then you know those three, uh, New England, Utah, and Atlanta, are on the road. And, you know, as Rob is, I think you witnessed, although we never had a home game up here in New England, this going to be loud. It's going to be electrifying. It's going to be crazy there. So, but one thing that Gilgronis have going for them is uh, is Alex, Alex Corvacero. He's going to be really good for their scrum. So, he's gonna, technically speaking, whatever else, he's going to be great for them. And then I think that the worst part for the Gilgronis this year is when they play San Diego on July 10th in the Los Angeles Heat. That's going to be tough for everybody especially that late in the season. So, yeah, that's what I got. Absolutely. You know what also is does bad in the heat, Bill? You want you want, really want to know? Bob, let him know. <laughs> What's that? The cheese, baby. Yes. yes. Bam. <laughs> I yeah. wanted that. And, and although, you had, although you had great points um, and you are a man of many words, uh, yeah, I had to give you a I spoke fast. I spent like four minutes in there. <laughs> You you really did. I mean, you did have enough 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 that I, I have several questions I want to ask you. So my first being, we'll talk about the we'll talk about the um, Giltinis. You were talking about the expansion teams, and I think you know in in this in this this COVID environment with a team who hasn't played together before. I think you're right. Um, I think their schedule is going to be tough no matter who they play, especially playing San Diego um, as much as they're going to do um, because they while San Diego might not. Currently, California is closed down. I'm not exactly sure what their restrictions are on being able to practice and whatnot. But when San Diego does be able be, be able to practice, they already have the coaching. They have the the returning players. They already kind of have that synergy built up. And they just have to add the new guys in the fold. Where the Giltinis are going to have to kind of find that synergy. So my question to you is, how long do you think it will take them to to gel together? Oh, uh, you know. So new like this, I'd, it's, I'd say six, seven matches. I mean, New England uh, last year, they seemed to gel pretty quick, even though expansion. But, however, they had the the uh, the Cali, not the Cali Cup, the, uh, you know, the Irish Cup they had the season before. Cup. Yeah, the Cali Cup. Yes, thank yeah. you, the Cali Cup. And uh, they were all able to build off of that, even though it was, you know, they added new players as they went along. But it's going to be a while. I mean, you've you got to play together for a while, you know, to work really well as a team. You can't just all of a sudden get – Great. You can't, I mean, it's not the barbarians out there. You know, just can't guys get guys together and all of a sudden play great. So, yeah, it's going to be, I'd say, half a season before they really start doing well. And, you know, I, I think that I asked you if you enjoyed being a flapjack, but he got a, a really pretty in depth question there. So, <laughs> I, I should have given him more credit. I, I, yes. Yes, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love Bill's work with uh, Eagles overseas. So, I did not wear the flapjack shirt. In honor because I do love the work he does. When when Mags is on, I'll wear it. I'll wear my flapjacks underwear. I'll wear my flapjack socks all day, every day. When he sees me, hopefully when I go to New England for that first match, I will be wearing my flapjack stuff. But um nice. Bill, the, the other thing, the other question I had is do you think the teams that are allowed to have the academies running currently, do you think they'll have a, a, a quicker boost when they come out of the gate to start this MLR season? This MLC? No, not yet. Um, I, I, I think there's a, a sense of uh, growth, let's say, within the organizations. I don't think it's going to affect this season at all. I don't think it's going to really affect next season as much. But I think three years or so, uh, you'll start seeing these homegrown academy players start making their way in and not just making the senior side, but actually making an impact. I, the only reason I would disagree with you this year is because we're seeing a lot of the senior players play on those pathway teams currently because I don't think there's enough mm-hmm. – enough players to, to fully pack those teams. So they want to yeah. play matches, you know, with, with a, a healthy number of players. So they've been putting senior players on those teams. So the, the only thing is I think they will reach that level of synergy when they go to their senior practices because they've all been playing yeah. together since let's say October. That's yeah. the only thing I, I would say. You're right. That's a good point. I would agree. I mean, look at, look at the number of, of players from the senior side that the four or four is fielding. And then we've already yeah. seen some NOLA guys get stuck in early on too. Yeah, up, up and, in the New England you, area, that we're not seeing them, we're not seeing them playing together right now up right. here. You know, there's nothing right. going on. Atlanta right. they've been playing, yeah. which has been great for them. Right. It seems, yeah. Exactly. Atlanta, Nola, uh, Utah has been doing it. Um, they've been able to do it. 
Um, so that, that was actually great. I actually love, you know, you said you didn't go as in-depth as Rob, and I think you just went as in-depth as Rob did. <laughs> you just focused on different things, and it was a great analysis. Yeah. So now Thank now you. we're going to our man in the bunker. Gordon, give us your best and worst. If <laughs> um, that is your name. Yeah, that is my name <laughs> for now. Um, so I think uh, when I was looking at the schedule, I think you have to consider like a, a clear east versus west split. Um, the west, you obviously you're going to have more travel with the longer flights, whereas the east, you're going to have the more adverse weather conditions. Um, so depending on how you uh, acclimatize to those conditions, I think that will depend on who actually enjoys their schedule more or not. Um, there was two things, and to speak to kind of what Rob was talking about, two things that I like to focus on as a coach is I don't mind playing 11, 12 weeks in a row. Like it's it's good, you know, because you have your training load, you you build up your, your your load. When the bye weeks are actually important is kind of, you know, the last week or two yeah. weeks before the playoffs. So um, this is why I, th- I think there's a clear loser for the, for the schedule, and that's Seattle. Um, the first five games are away, which again, with COVID and the travel restrictions, that might be difficult. That might get moved around. But leading into like July, I think in 12 days, they play three games. And right before the playoffs are due to start, they have two games in four days. And that's against both the uh, Giltinis and the Gilgronis. And, you know, we're not sure of their full schedules yet, but we do know there's a lot of big forwards on those teams. Um so they're going to be. That's going to be two very physical games for Seattle to play leading into the playoffs. Um, I think that's going to be difficult for them. You know, and like in the last World Cup, they talked about how to win a World Cup. You generally want the easier games before the knockout rounds. Um, it's very hard to play at your top level five weeks in a row. So for for me, Seattle was a was a. Um, it, it's, they're really going to struggle with the schedule. I think. Um, the northeastern teams, uh, they seem to be okay. Just again, how how you deal with the weather. Um, I liked the the look of the Austin schedule. Looking at their away games, because they only really have um, one cold weather away game. Like the weather should cooperate, and it should be kind of moderate for all of their away games. You know, they're playing in the colder places towards the end of the season in like May, June, July. Um, yeah, that's under two minutes. You know- and- Ready to go. <laughs> it, it's it, it was close. It was close. Yeah, I, I I think you you had a great point there. So I gave some gave some play to you. Um. So my question to you would be because I feel like I mean I, I want to discuss more of the Seattle question with you. I, I while I feel I I see what you're talking about between the three matches in, in twelve days. <laughs> I sometimes feel though maybe that puts you on a roll when you're getting into the playoffs where you know now you you have your lineup straightened out. You know. Barring injury, you know, we know that obviously, you know, three props can be blown out in the first three weeks and, and everything goes to shit. But, you know, maybe you're, you're now rolling into those last four matches with uh, uh, a, a, a way of playing. And you don't think that that could be something that would maybe affect their, their playoff performance in a positive way? Um, so when we, when we look at the like the perceived load and stuff, what you want to do is like leading in the playoffs. So let's say if we are to make the final, that would be like 80% of your workload for the week. You know, semifinals would be 90, quarterfinals would be like 100, 110. Right before the playoffs, you, we, you really want to overload the players a little bit, you know, put some extra like uh, meters in their legs. But it's going to be hard to do that because they're going to play a game and the recovery periods are going to be so long. And the recovery in one game, you know, three days after one game is tough, but a recovery two games in four days, that's like an exponential um, drop off. You're going to be, they're not going to be able to push that hard. Also in the time between games, everything's going to have to be set uh, beforehand. So if they do have any new, like let's say they have starter players or, or little, you know, little like nuances or changes that they want to bring in to prepare for the quarterfinals, or the the playoffs, should I say? It's America. It's it's going to be tough. To, it's going to be tough to work on that. And then the other thing is, they might not know if they're in it. You know, they might have to win both games. It's going to be hard for them to prepare for the finals because they know oh, we have to beat both these games. Where you take someone who I think the uh, the the Giltinis will do well. Giltinis have a bye week leading into that. They with with the squad they have, I think they'll be able to have a fair idea if they're in or out, so they can actually prep for the finals. 
Now, what's interesting, and, and I sorry for interjecting, Scott, and, and I thought your coaching points about load and things like that were really important. What I thought was interesting, and the reason I shied away from it a bit, was that I think of those, what, five games or six-game stretch, they're at home for all but one of them. So uh, while I understand your point there, it does make it a little – it does make it convenient because they do have, I think, probably one of the best home field advantages with the crowds mm-hmm. they get at, at Starfire. That's why I was a little bit tepid about, you know, you know, picking them as having a, a challenge there at the end because they they have such an advantage at home. Yeah, no, for sure. Like it is a huge advantage, but, you know, it's might be um, with the first five games being away, that advantage is not there. And they might be in a difficult situation to start the season. They're kind of dig, trying to dig themselves out of a hole, which means they're going to have to work very hard. Um I'd be I'd be just concerned with the schedule if, if I were them, and it, and it's also difficult to plan as a coach to to get your, uh, you know your 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 periodization and your practices um, um, squared away. Absolutely, and I, obviously, everybody knows I'm going to talk about Rooney. But in 2019, Rooney had that exact um, exact thing happen. You know, they were coming into the last couple matches not knowing if they were going to make the playoffs. They squeak in. And then, you know, they, they dropped that semifinal match to San Diego uh, at the death. And I think they just kind of ran out of steam trying to get through to, to, to get that playoff run. Um, so I definitely see um, Gordon's point in that as far as, you know, maybe losing steam more than, than gaining a momentum there. Um, those are some great points, guys. I got to be honest. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to pick a winner always in the first round, especially with two new guys, because we're never sure how they're going to do. Um, What's and, it, what, and Rob, I, I thought it was interesting. We all had a different angles on this, you know, Gordon looking at it from a coaching perspective and, and Bill looking at it from, you know, some really good matchups that were going to be, you know, those derbies as, as the MLRC to call them and, and me looking more at bye weeks and things like that. So it was really cool to see the different nuances. Now we approach the, the angles of the season because it is going to be a long, hard road for all of them at some point. Definitely. And and I agree that that Bill's point about the derbies, I think MLR has built the excitement in to create yeah. those, those those derby matches that they might not have had. Well, they didn't get to have last year with some of the teams right. because of the truncated season. Right. Um, but uh, th- those were <laughs> it's again, I, I don't think I can name a winner here right now of this first round. You guys had all great points. Um, so I think we're going to have to wait to see what happens in the second round. What I mean, there's nothing. There's, I'm not Ty. Ty uh, just picks me after the first round all the time because I know he knows I'm right. Um, but since I don't get to put my opinion in, um, you know, we can't do that here. Um, but if I did have an opinion, I would say that the only the, the only reason I could see Toronto having the bye week on the first week is just in case they have they're having trouble crossing the border. Yeah. Um, it gives them that extra week to to kind of sort things out and really get on maybe the, the lawyer side and the legal side of things to straighten them out for them to come to the United States. But um, right now, guys, we're going to take a break. Uh, take a break and hear from our sponsors. Welcome back, rugby rant fans. It's the big guy Scott Farrar with the Rob. Oh. Hold on, Scott. You know we got Christmas coming up. What I want to know is what was on your Christmas list that you gave to your wife for this upcoming Christmas I mean, season? Like the the number one thing, or, or like yeah. everything? No, the number one thing. Well, obviously, the number one thing is the new Rooney twenty twenty one kit that you can get at therugbyshop.com. I mean, going home or away? Rooney. I want to know. That's a good question. You know, I like the home blue with the with the Gustavino tile layout, actually, okay. um, which is a cool little detail in that kit. So that's where you're going home? Going with the home? Yeah, I'm going home. Going with the blue homes, yeah. Okay. Cool. What that's about nice. you? I mean. Well, so so the hot item, well, you can't tell anybody, so just so you know, don't release the – hopefully my kid isn't watching. But, um, yeah, I, I went with a bunch of murdered out rugby rant wear. For my family, uh, the the hot item on the list was the hammer tee. What what's the hammer tee? Oh, for you guys who don't know the hammer tee, so uh, there's a picture of me when my playing days uh, many moons ago, um, where uh, I've got my son who's now 21 over my shoulder. He's looking. He's got a big smile on his face because uh, he's laughing at me because Daddy got raked in the game that afternoon. So I've got big rake marks on my back. And uh, my wife took the picture. So, you know, I, I saw the murdered out. You know, I love murdered out gear. I just got the Rooney, the last year's Rooney murdered out shirt, 1250 on sale at the, at the rugby shop.com. I love that so much. So I asked him, I said, you got the murdered out stuff. Can you put 
this on there. And I showed them the picture and they're like, hell yeah, we can do that. We can customize anything. We can do anything you want to do. And so they, they, uh, they dubbed it the hammer tee because it has my rake marks on the back. And of course my family will love that gift. Absolutely. Go to the rugby shop.com for all your 2021 kit pre-orders and get the murdered out hammer tee at the rugby shop.com. So now after uh, I've been rudely interrupted, uh, <laughs> we can get back to the down and dirty. Let's get hot again, fellas. So the second, um, topic of the day is the 2025 Rugby World Cup expansion from 12 women's teams to 16 women's teams. So in 2021, they're going to have a 12-team competition. In 2025, they're going to have a 16-team competition. Um, we're going to go opposite, so we're going to start with Gordon in the bunker. Gordon, let me know about the uh, the expansion. What do you got to say? Um, well, I think it's fascinating. I think the the, the one thing – like moving to 16 teams, there's going to be a lot more um, parity in the pools or the groups. Um, this upcoming World Cup in 21, I think, is a little bit unbalanced due to um, some po- some pools having a lot stronger teams than the others. You know, like Canada and the US are probably at a distinct advantage because they're sharing the pool with Europe 1 and Asia 1. Um, so for them, it's a head-to-head to see who is actually the, the number one qualifier. I think if we go to four pools and 16 teams, you know, there's going to be um, the better teams are going to be fresher going into quarterfinals or, or, or if it does go semifinals. Um, so I think that's it'll be a more of an accurate uh, representation of what the women's game is and in what the potential for the quality of play that there is. Because um, it's always rugby is a strange sport in that the, the numbers in the World Cups change all the time. But you know, we, if you've ever watched some of the even the men's World Cup, like the pools are just you know you have your pool of death, and it could be four really good teams, and then you have another another pool with just two. Um, so by with the women's World Cup going to sixteen teams, I think it's going to be really good for the parity on the top teams, but it's also going to provide an opportunity for these uh, developing teams to have more consistent games for themselves you know yes yes they may got they may get smashed by 80 points in one game but then they're probably going to get you know at least one maybe a second um game against a, another nation that's at a similar level to them so i think for for parity wise it's all it's, it's really good I mean, I, I don't know how many times I'm going to say this on the rugby rant. I mean, this should be on a shirt, but uh, iron sharpens iron. And I think expanding that field is is what you're talking about. And that's how you're going to get some of these na- these nations that maybe don't have the power to to win. But, you know, if they're going to play in New Zealand, they're going to play uh, in England, they're going to play a USA or a Canada that may, they may not have been able to play a, tense, a test match against before. They will still get that experience, and they will understand the flow, the speed, the aggressiveness, you know, all the different things that bring you up to that top tier level. So I, I, I definitely agree with you on that. So my my question to you would be: Would expanding it to twenty four teams in in twenty twenty five be too much of an expansion? Um, yes, and so I've been lucky enough to work in uh, rugby around the world. Uh, 24 teams, I think, I mean, a lot of uh, nations are struggling and a lot of the executives at the uh, governing body of those countries see women's rugby as a burden and they will cut the funding for all the programs unless it's an Olympic sport because then they get actually Olympic funding. Um, I think there would a, I think there'll be a lot of teams underdeveloped and I'm not sure there are the 20 there are 24 teams that could actually compete uh, to an, an adequate level. You know, we don't want to see 130 to nothing, you know, and then to have exactly. to have to have the team themselves to go out and um, fundraise just to get there. You know, that's, that's, okay. that's, putting, that's putting a burden on the players and individual sponsors, which is what we, I mean, it, it shouldn't be in the game, but even, even at, even here in the U S there is a, there is a little bit of that. So if you were to take some of the more developing nations, like it, it'll be, it'd be 10 times worse. Absolutely. I mean, they, they set up the XV foundation in the United States just to fund women's rugby besides USAR funding. Um, Mark Cuban just donated $50,000 to the women's program in USAR's all in campaign. You guys can go and donate to that campaign too, from USAR hashtag all in. Um, those are great points, Gordon. I love it. Bill, what do you got to say? 
Well, you just said everything I was going to say, but no, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Here, so I think I think it's great. I think it needs to happen. Uh, it's a great way to spread the game uh, and grow the game around the world. Um, any World Cup year uh, uh, brings good news or bad news, but it brings the news of the sport itself uh, back to the nations, especially those those uh, developing nations as well. It gets it in front of uh, more fans. Um, again, what to lose or win? Now. My two worries here are one financial, uh, like Gordon was saying, and you were saying is that, you know, even countries like ours, we have a hard time uh, financing the women's program. You know, the XV Foundation, Mark Cuban, you know, it's a pay to play situation, even in the USA. I mean, many of the women have to put up their own money for certain things. So what does that mean for those tier two, those developing nations? I mean, it's, uh, you know, Kazakhstan, do they have funding to have their team go to the World Cup? You know, or not just go to the World Cup, but develop a full, strong 15 side that can compete with England, Canada, and so forth. Now, besides the money, you know, the disparity in competition levels, I'm worried. I'm one that's worried about what that would look like because uh, there's going to be more blowouts, at least for this first World Cup. You know, we had Hong Kong lose to Canada 98 nothing. They lost to New Zealand 121 nothing. That's a lot. You know, and again, I don't want to take anything away from these players. They deserve to be there and deserve to compete. And I think it's great for everybody, you know, but what happens and as we expand this and we get teams that are lower ranked than Hong Kong, you know, so I think leading up to World Cups and the non-World Cup years, these teams need to have more test matches against better competition, at least. And that all still comes back to funding. You know, if these companies, these countries don't have the funding, how are they going to get England to play Sweden or the Netherlands? You know, it's just... It's going to be really tough for them. So it's got to happen, but it's got to be done right. And, we, and the team's got to have some kind of funding or more support from World Rugby to make it happen. You know, and it's it's. I have so many ideas about funding and, and World Rugby and, and the parity of funding that I, that would be a whole rugby rant for just the big guy. So I'm not even going to get into that. But I think you're right. I think it, it is – the funding is the issue. So, so my question to you, Bill, is actually more of – we, we just had uh, Kate Zachary on our show, and we know she was on your show. And I, I don't know if she got to talk about this on your show, but she mentioned that in the uh, women's premiership in England, they have, they've signed, the teams have signed way more internationals uh, outside of the UK than they have in any other year. So my question is, do you think that that effect is now going to trickle down to those national teams where maybe you get a jump in um, play and maybe get a jump in, in being more competitive in some of those matches? And be as far as what Kate said about the Premier 15 signing more international players? Yeah, like do you think it's – it's obviously it's a good thing it's getting their name out there, but on the, the rugby side, do you think now when those international players go back to their international teams that it will translate into showing the other their, their teammates how it's supposed to be done? Oh, absolutely. But if you look at the rosters, and I haven't gone that deep into it, um, they're, they're, it's – I don't think it's, you know, 24 nations of players playing in the Premier 15s. Now, we have five USA Eagles playing overseas, and that's that's the most we've ever had in the Premier 15s or what it was, the Tyrell 15s before that. But that experience uh, that Christine Summer, you know, Kate, Gabby, Janine, and, and Jess uh, Wooden, who's not playing anymore, but um, they bring that back to the States, and that helps our team out as well But because no one else is playing over here, you know? So – any nation that they go back to will definitely help that experience and that, uh, that leadership that these premier 15 players bring back to, this, to their own country. So Bill, um, yeah, so when, I'm oh, sorry, when they come back, no, like, go ahead, Gordon. how many times, I mean, from, from a financial and geographical point of view, how many times are the U S going to play Canada before the next world cup? Well, um, way things are going never, but, um, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's, I mean, same with the men's. I mean, you, you typically what play them twice a year at least, you know, and I mean, geographically it can happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. You can, they can play at the border, but, um, but that's, that's a luxury that I think Canada and the USA have, although yeah. there are geographic big countries, but that is a bit of a luxury that we have. You know, and, and now, you know, on the men's side with their change in Rugby World Cup qualifying and, and having that lead up to figure out who is um, North American one, North American two, just through USA Canada test matches, um, you know, we might see a lot of those border clashes. Um, MLR has their own border clash when Toronto meets Rooney in a preseason match every 
season uh, uh, in Buffalo, and that there's something always happens in that match. Uh, I think we're going to talk about that in a future interview. So I'm just going to hype that up a little bit. So check out our Christmas interview with Rob Aramiskew later on this uh, this month. But anyway, um, the great points, Bill uh, um, and, and Gordon. You're right. You know, it, <laughs> in, in the pool, you were talking about the pool. It's pretty much going to be USA. Who, who's going to win the USA Canada match to figure out if if something can happen to move out of that pool? Um, because the person not winning that match might go zero and three. So I got to give Rob his two minutes, and then we could talk about it a little more freely. So Rob, it's your turn. Yeah. Um, uh, so I like the expansion from twelve to sixteen teams. Um, you know, it it brings it more on par, closer to par with the men's game. Of course, the men's team said twenty. With um, you know the the four pools of five, um, so we're getting closer to that equality component. Um, I think one of the things we have to remember is twenty eight percent of the uh, women make up twenty eight percent of the global rugby playing population, and so we have to with that increase. It's one of the quick most quickly increasing groups of players and and sports in the world right now, which is pretty amazing to see. And this is a reflection of that. Um, and we can't forget that they increased, uh, they put a quarterfinal in rather than the pool winners going into the semi, they put a quarterfinal in. And so it gives some opportunities for some of those teams that maybe, you know, are not the number one team in the, in the pool to actually advance and get an opportunity to play some pretty quality uh, knockout stages, uh, which is beneficial. Um, but going back to the component of it brings it on par. One of the things I think is important is that, um, you know, we can see after 2025 and expanded to 16, if there's still a lot of parity, if there's a lot of parity and there's some really close games, we don't have a lot of those blowouts and we can think about increasing it to the, the same as the men's, which is, a, you know, uh, four pools of five for 20 total teams. Um, so it'll get, be a good barometer, I think, in 2025. Um, this whole thing expands the opportunity for not only teams, because you have teams like typically strong, um, you know, uh, uh, rugby playing countries like Wales, Scotland, and South Africa that now have an opportunity to participate. But you also have those teams that are up and coming, Japan, Russia, and and uh, and Spain. So it's nice to see. And the great thing is every four years, uh, the women's talent will be on the greatest stage and there will be more opportunities for some, maybe some of the ladies that don't get a look because they're not playing in a, you know, in a, in a UK domestic league, they'll get a look and they might get a chance at a contract and we can see that trickle down effect over into those countries because they'll take their 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 skills and their knowledge back to their host nation or their home nation. Uh, you know I'm a Packers fan, right, Rob? I'm sorry. I said you know you know I'm a Green Bay Packers fan, right? Uh, I thought you were a Michigan fan. You're just all over the place: Rooney, Michigan, Green Bay Packers, whoever's winning. It's Michigan's more of a college, bandwagon. Is, is that bandwagon Green, fan? Is Michigan's, that right? a, Michigan's a university. Green Bay's a professional team, and you know what they like in Wisconsin? Cheese, my yeah. friend. Wait a minute, for going over the time. Way over. You didn't give him the cheese, man. You're being Gordon off the did not go way over. Uh, Gordon, he did not go way over. We'll have to replay that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think you're right. I think slowly but surely, obviously, going to the 16 and that quarter, your your point on the quarterfinal is right because it now will give teams a chance who wouldn't have that competition to get those crucial minutes of competition um, and, and something that they wouldn't get. And if they can't get test matches, um, you know, beyond that, it's it's minutes that they, they weren't getting otherwise. Um you're right. I think they're going to use 2025 as a barometer going into 2029. 20, uh, I don't know if they'll expand again in 2029. I have a feeling 2029 we'll see this a 16 team um, play out again because um, I don't think there's going to be that much growth um, internationally. And who knows where we are with COVID 2023 and and you know <laughs> new things happen are going to happen. You know, not to get everybody down about what what's going on, but you know you don't know. But so. You know, it's even hard to say uh, this next 2021, you know, hopefully we're going to get to play it. Um, but those, those, that was a great point. So now the, what I'm going to ask, and we're going to go back to Gordon. Um, from a coaching perspective, Gordon, if I want to know from your perspective, what you would do for a team that maybe doesn't quite have the the goods to, to play against a top tier nation, how do you you were talking about practices before in our previous one? How would you maybe give us a little scenario about how would you want to set up a team to play better uh, and and with better competition? Well, sometimes you're going to lose. Um, 
<laughs> and that this, this, this is a key component, you know. Um, the All Blacks come to town. If you're if you are the U.S., you're going in with an expectation that you have to set different kind of goals. You know, um, I know, like for instance, back in the when was Dan Lyle and stuff? The 2003 Men's World Cup. It might have been 07. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. had two guys who were like six foot eight, six foot nine, in, in playing second row, and one of their goals was to disrupt sure. as much, disrupt as much line out as possible, and that's how you're judged, you know. Um, sometimes you're just not going to win a competition, and you go, you go. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, yeah, no. like, like if you're a Texas Rangers baseball fan, you ain't, we ain't win the World Series this year. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I, you, I think you're. Yeah, I know. I think that's a great answer. I think. You know, it's not necessarily about what the scoreboard said sometimes. It's about the metrics you have to set for yourself to create a better way to do things and and say, you know, this is the part of the game we're going to work on. Whatever it is, scrummage, jackling, passes, Mm -hmm. fluidity of your system, things like that. So I think you're right. I think you're going to have to see that when you see teams play that you know might get blown out. And that's something uh, I have found fascinating. Like, if you look at the countries that have really progressed, you know, uh, from the tier two up, uh, it started with Argentina back in the day, and they they build on a solid foundation, which was their scrum, and and they, they've expanded from that. That you know, the Japanese have worked on their style of play, and you know, when you are going into these tournaments, knowing that you know you're not going to win, it's about it's about your your culture and your legacy. And that's what you're selling to these players. You know, you're not chasing glory as so much, but you're, you're chasing a legacy and, and they, they are the ones there that building a foundation for what can come afterwards. You know, um, Japan is a great example. You know, the, we've all seen the clip to the world cup, where they lost by a hundred and something. And now they're coming back and beating Ireland and Scotland. And it's, a, it is a, it is a, I don't, I don't even say a long process. It's almost a multi-generational process when it comes to the age of a rugby player. So what we do now impacts what happens, you know, four World Cups away. I wonder if, if in 2018, when the United States played uh, the Black Ferns in Soldier Field, um, and, and by the way, uh, took a hiding a bit, right? But I think the roster was pretty chock full of young players, mm-hmm. right, that they saw – not necessarily mounting uh, a real good con- – I mean, I don't think they saw them beating their Black Ferns at that moment in time. But what I think they saw is an opportunity to blood some young players for the future, for 2021, to create the depth so that they're much better prepared to go into that tournament. I mean, I think I've said it before. My first match, I think we lost 106 to nothing playing rugby. So, you know, no, nothing better than going to a social and not scoring, not only not scoring a try, but the other team going over the century mark. Um, <laughs> so the next, the next open question, and we'll start off the, the, we'll start off with Bill though. Um, I think for Team USA, you know, we had, we've, we've, we've seen what, how they've been doing practicing with COVID. They obviously have this extra time now. Do you think this is this is their time to really press on the 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 players that they have that might this might be their last shot, or do you think they should roll in some of those young players again and kind of kind of blood them, or do you think we should go all out and just just in in this time of COVID where they might not have the cohesion due to practices, maybe the squad setup setup should be a lot of veterans. Well, I think it might be a mix of both. Um... I think it's a great time to get in the uh, the new blood, you know, because who knows when we're really going to be playing again on a competitive level, a test level. Um, you know, we've already lost so much. Men and women programs have already lost so much. I mean, the men's lost, you know, 10 weeks of preparation training this year. Um, and women, the same way. Um, I just think it's a great chance to get in that young blood with the older blood and and have, you know, by example from the older blood, you know, teaching those younger, the, the, the younger you know, players. Um, and that goes back to uh, that. Rob, you made a great point or I'm sorry to tangent here, but you made a great point before about these younger players, lesser known players playing in these world cups with bigger matches. They get, they get noticed by the professional leagues, which also brings back notoriety back to their country. So the quicker we can start getting these younger players in, I think the quicker they can get noticed once we finally get into those matches. I'm not, and this is nothing against, say players like Kate or those they're phenomenal rugby players and they've made it and they're still going to play for a while. 
But I think there's a time now, and this could be a great window to get the others in and really start working with them. You know, I, I want to address that a little bit because I, it was funny. Uh, next week, one of our guests is going to be David Fee, who's a mate of mine. David Fee is a U18 men's uh, sevens uh, national team coach. Uh, and he himself played both uh, for the Eagles, both in the sevens and the 15 side. And he played in the 2003 World Cup. And it was interesting. We were chatting back and forth um, over a couple of pints. And um, what was interesting about what he told me is in 2003, they took this, they took the team there and they had a pretty stacked team. I mean, it was probably one of the best, uh, most talented teams that the USA has ever fielded at a World Cup. Um, I think they lost to Fiji by one. But what was interesting about what he said was actually they had a, a really strong back row. Dave Hodges, uh, we of course had Dan Lyle, a couple other really solid back rowers, but they took a 19-year-old Todd Clever with him. Now, Todd Clever knew he wasn't going to see the pitch, knew he wasn't going to ever dress, but they took him anyway. And, and the, so the question is why? Well, it was kind of the same thing what we see in New Zealand. You know, Jordy, Jordy Barrett being taken as an apprentice at 19 years old. He gets an opportunity to see what it's like to be a, I mean, a professional of sorts, to see a World Cup so that the next time when he's actually the man, it's not new. It's an experience he's already engaged in. And, and that's the value in taking some of those younger players that Bill talked about. Well, well, and, and Rob, to lead off of that, um, exactly. I mean, you, you get them in now. It's, it won't be new to them once they start breaking into the senior scene, but they're with the senior players. You know, there's, there's all those clever got there. He got to see it. And then once he got in there, he wasn't some kid who they just called up one day. Right. He wasn't you know, starry-eyed when he walked in there, right? Right, right. Get him in there and, and you know, um, I mean, you know, Scott, you got your ass kicked in a 106 to nothing game, but you kept playing, didn't you? I got my ass kicked yeah, in my you know. first game playing lock, and I said, this is the best game ever, and I kept yeah. playing. You know, that kind of idea, get him in there, get him involved, and they're they're sold and, and and maybe they'll work that extra amount to become that player that they were watching at the training pitch. I do think that um, when we are bringing the younger players in, it's not just about the uh, on-field performance or the training environment. There has to be a very robust support network there, especially if we look at the women's game. You know, a lot of the, the older players have been through the process. They understand the limitations of what the funding is. They understand that the sacrifices that are going to have to be made, be it uh, through university or career or, or whatever. Um, so when we, if, ideally, yes, we, we would, let's say we pick a team of 18, 19 year olds and we say, Hey, these, these 40 players are going to prep for, you know, two world cup cycles from now, but they might not have the support network to actually be able to go out and, maximize their performance at, and train at the best level because they're not sure of of the sacrifices and how best to get around them i think that's something like like you did talk about jordy i was very lucky i got a coach jordy in the when i was in new zealand but but you know the all black support network is the best in the world that's why they, oh, they yeah. are able to do that and, and i don't think that well especially here in the u.s i don't think that support network is as um robust as it as it could be or should be or even needs to be no and that's why they need to be selective about who is, who they're going to put in that in that uh situation you know it can't be the whole team yeah. uh but certainly you can you can earmark some players that you see having a lot of depth and talent particularly at what i what i always refer to as the spine positions right <laughs> at your key decision making positions because those are the people that are going to be under the most pressure most consistently at the highest level at that highest stage uh you know every four years you know, and, and I think you could actually boil it down to something even smaller where just, you know, you were talking about support systems. And while, you you know, your example with Todd Clever was giving him the experience to experience it, that, that costs money, money USAR might not have. But just involving younger players with the older players, just to have a phone. Hey, have a, a older player reach out to a younger player at the same position. Say, hey, these are the struggles I went through when I was a younger player. You know, just make that communication which is something that doesn't really cost anything as far as an expense. And that's just a way that one, it'll build, it's a team building exercise Two, it's, it's creates that connection where if that younger player gets into a situation where they don't know what to do, they can have a mentor style person there to say, Hey, this is what I had to do. 
if you need to make this decision, this is what happens. If you can't, that's okay. And, you know, maybe they move on from what they're doing. Um, but I think you can just do that with a mentorship program and it wouldn't cost USAR any money. Um, guys, I think we're at that point where I have to pick a winner. Um, generally, the rule of thumb is if you get a yellow card, you're out. Um, <laughs> the, thing, the thing is, Rob and, Gord, uh, Rob and Bill, while they got the yellow cards, their points were valid. You know, they weren't just rambling on and they really tried to close it out. So it was hard to give them the yellow, but, you know, by law, by the rule of law, I had to give it to them. Um, Gordon came out uh, spitting a ton of stuff. Um, it's, it's <sighs> I'm, I think I'm going to have to give this one to Gordon. Congratulations, wow. Gordon. You won this nice trophy that I will not send you. Um and uh, to, to be honest, and now this was really on, since I've been hosting, um, this was one of the hardest ones, regardless of, of the, the the cards to figure out because you guys hit on such different points, but you hit all hit them at the same level, and that's what w- was hard for me to kind of def- you know to defer. You know, there wasn't an exact who won a whole segment as far as who won that little point within that segment while you were talking or cross examining someone else. Um, guys, thank you so much for being on the show. Again, we have Bill Baker from Eagle Overseas. We have Gordon Hanlon from a rugby bunker somewhere. Honestly, he might be a POW somewhere in a foreign country. We really don't know. Um, but, but, but guys, thanks again. He comes out on the other side, won't he? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks again for watching. Uh, from everybody at the Rugby Rant, I'm the big guy, Scott Ferrara. That's Rob the Robert Hammerschmidt. Uh, or the Hammer Hammerschmidt. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever your name is. Uh, Rob the Hammer Hammerschmidt. Okay, Booster. Uh, and, buddy- <laughs> <laughs> and our buddy Ty Braga. Thank you for watching the show, and we will see you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.